You're listening to How Did I Get Here? A deep dive into our journey to find the dream job. I'm your host, Jason Fish, and today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Tucker Singo Hamilton, the 461st Flight Test Squadron Commander and the F-35 Integrated Test Force Director. Welcome, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, and thank you for your service. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. It's an honor to serve. Before we get into your current job and journey to get there, I'd like to start at the beginning. From a young age, there's someone who's you know been a great inspiration to you. Would you be able to talk about the story behind that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so um, I think we're all made up of different stories that influence us. And and for me, there was this uh, the story of uh, this young girl. She was 16 years old. Uh, she was late for a train as she was coming home from school. The year was 1928. And so she's running for this train and she makes makes the train. And there was a track coach on the train. And he stops her at school the next day and is like, hey, Betty, um, I, I saw you running for the train yesterday and, and you were really fast. Have you ever considered competing in track and field? And she never had. She was 16 and she liked and enjoyed running, but uh, never thought about competing. So she uh, said, sure, I'll give it a try. She went out to a track meet. Uh, I think it was about a week or two after that. She competes in this track meet and, and she's a sprinter. So a hundred meter dash. She, she comes out on top, breaks a, a state record for the hundred meter dash and the coach goes up to her and says, Betty, you, you are something else. You really have a talent here. I would like to see you um, go to the Olympic trials that are occurring in just a few months in, in New York. So Betty, uh, all of 16, uh, convinces her, her parents to, to head out to the Olympic trials. And, and she goes uh, to New York just uh, a few months after never racing before. And she's at the Olympic trials and, and she places second in the 100 meter dash, which means she makes the Olympic team. Back in the day, you make the Olympic team at this point, and you literally, you know, a day or two later, you get on a boat and you start going across the ocean. Uh, so she jumps on a boat, goes across the Atlantic, and ends up in Amsterdam. And it's the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics. It's the first year they let women compete in almost any event, including all the track and field events. And so the first track event is the 100 meter dash, and this 16 year old girl from Illinois. Uh, comes out on top and wins the gold medal. So she's the first woman to ever win a gold medal in track. And it was the, the 100 meter dash. Uh, she comes home a champion and starts training uh, with the Olympic teams in preparation for the 1932 Olympics. And then right before those uh, Olympics, she's in a plane crash with her cousin. They pick her up from the plane crash, some uh, folks that witnessed it, and put, in, put her in the back of their trunk and take her to the morgue because they think she's dead. Well, the mortician is like, she's not dead, take her to a hospital. So she ends up in a hospital, she's in a coma, she wakes up after a few months in a coma, and the doctors say, Betty, you are never gonna run again. Uh, you probably won't walk again. And Betty says, oh really? So she begins to walk again, begins to sprint again, but she can't get in a starter's crouch because of all these pins in her knees because of the, the airplane crash. So she, uh, can't, she can't get in the blocks, but she can accept a baton. So she goes out um, and competes for a spot on the 1936 
women's four by 100 relay and she makes the team. So she goes to Berlin in 1936, the Berlin Olympics. She's the third leg in the women's four by 100 and they win the gold medal. So the 16 year old who uh, didn't know anything about running becomes an Olympic champion, goes through a, a tragic event where she is uh, a miracle. She survives. She's maybe never going to run again or walk again. And she finds herself uh, on the Olympic podium on the, on the top uh, just a few years later. And this story just, it sticks with me because that's my grandma. And when you have that type of influence in your life growing up, and I, I knew her until um, she passed when I was around 19 years old, just an amazing woman. But when you meet someone like that and, and you know uh, what resiliency looks like and you understand what it means to go after something, no matter what people are, are telling you is right or wrong and, and making sure that you're going to blaze your own path because you know it's the right thing to do, uh, that, that sticks with you. And, and it has carried with me you know, my entire career. Wow, that's that's incredible. Uh, you know, it's almost hard to believe someone who's 16 years old never really ran before and becomes an uh, Olympic gold medalist two times in a row um, with such, you know, uh, an accident in between. It's it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, it's an amazing story made for uh, made for Disney kind of movie. <laughs> Maybe one day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was was she the first one? Did she tell you that? Was that the first time you heard it? Was it from her? Probably not. I don't remember. It was just a story that was always a part of my life. So I, um, I know I've talked to her about it, but I, I'm pretty sure it was my mom who shared with me when I was younger. And then growing up, it just became part of, you know, our family story. Of course. Have you now switching over to uh, airplanes? Have you always, you know, been fascinated with airplanes? You know, where did like that love and passion come from? Well, funny enough, uh, no, I, I have not. Uh, I am kind of a unique uh, person for the for the job that I am uh, currently uh, doing. I, you know, I never loved aviation that way. Um, I really loved the idea of going to space. I loved uh, Star Trek growing up. I wanted so much to be a part of that world and and traveling, you know, through galaxies and, and using technology and uh, the idea of exploring was just something that uh, that kind of took hold of me at a very young age. And so I made a lot of decisions to go down a pathway that would keep doors open to be an astronaut. And that was really my motivation with regard to, you know, getting more involved in school. I, I think I was in seventh grade or around 12 years old when I really decided that I wanted to maybe go. For, uh, you know, for the astronaut job, I wanted to go for it. And I went to school, I wasn't in an advanced math course, but I knew I needed to get there. So I went and told the teachers, I want to get into the put in, uh, I want to be put into the advanced math. And I wasn't great at math, I wasn't a natural at it, I had to work really hard. Um, and then I ended up in the advanced math course. And then as I went through school, I wanted to always keep those doors open. I went to college to study engineering. Um, I almost didn't go to college to study engineering. I almost went to study something else, but I I decided that, you know, um, a pathway that would allow me to still be an astronaut would be to study engineering. I knew the military was a good pathway to becoming uh, an astronaut. So I, I joined Air Force ROTC on a whim. Um, I went through college and did fine in aerospace engineering right before graduation. I didn't plan on flying. I never had a pilot fly because my eyes weren't good enough. 
And then right before graduating, uh, some folks told me that there was a waiver for my eyes. And if I wanted to give that a shot and I said, okay, sure. I'm not sure what else I want to do. And I got a waiver for my eyes. I went to pilot training. I almost quit pilot training a number of times because I found it, um, I found it kind of boring. Uh, and my wife convinced me, no, you're really going to love it. Uh, you got to give it a chance. And, and I think that was a really good lesson that sometimes it, it takes a lot of effort and time to really recognize a passion or love for something. And then I end up in pilot training and, or pardon me, graduating pilot training and uh, in an F-15C operational squadron and, and loved it. That's the first time where I really fell in love with the idea of interfacing and er interacting with this technology and allowing it to help me execute um, you know, maneuvers or execute uh, basically battlefield mission. And I loved it at that point. And then I've continued to pursue this idea of taking that interaction and figuring out how I could help develop it. And that drove me to a pathway of wanting to be a test pilot. So that's kind of how I ended up here. And I still don't love aviation the way that a lot of pilots love aviation, but I am um, very thrilled that, that the doors have opened to allow me to interface with this technology and uh, be around the people I'm around. And I, I really have thoroughly enjoyed my career, though I never planned for it. It's funny when, when parents, you know, ask their kids, you know, what they want to be when they grow up, I would probably say, you know, nine times out of 10, someone says, oh, I want to be an astronaut, but not a lot of people really follow through with it. And, and you were really serious about it. Was becoming a pilot kind of like the next best thing for you? Was it the, or was it still like a step to get, you know, to becoming an astronaut from the beginning? Well, from the beginning, it was a step and that's not always the best, but it's not always the worst either. Sometimes we don't know what we want. Sometimes we just pursue what's on our heart. Uh, it, it's hard for other people can't tell us what we need to pursue. It's hard for us sometimes to really know what that is, to identify what we're going after. We just have this call, this, this desire to go after something. And for me, that call, that initial seed was to try to get to, to NASA as an astronaut. And I knew that the, the pilot uh, job would be a, a doorway uh, to that position. And so I, I followed it. And then soon thereafter, once I got through pilot training and was in my operational squadron, that's really when it, 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 it became clear to me that the end all be all was not necessarily being an astronaut. It was something that, um, you know, maybe a possibility still in my career, but not, I'm not something I'm going to look for. And it's difficult. I mean, I'm sure your listeners and, and you recognize that it's, it's hard to know uh, what to pursue and how long to pursue it and where those doors are going to take you. Um, but at times, I think you just need to follow that, that call that you have and, and see where it takes you. Absolutely. Um, so going back to, to your path so far, so, so you joined ROTC on a whim and, and you've gone through pilot training. Now, what's next? What was next in your career? So after pilot training, yeah, operational F-15C pilot. So that's a air-to-air -air combat and single-seat air-to-air fighter. Uh, from there, I became an air liaison officer. So I worked with troops on the ground. So whenever bombs are being dropped from aircraft uh, onto the battlefield, there's typically someone on the battlefield that is calling in those airstrikes. And I became a part of that team that coordinated those type of airstrikes. I was stationed in Germany and, and had a 
uh, a very rewarding experience as an air liaison officer. And while I was an air liaison officer, I also had an opportunity to uh, stand up uh, an MC-12 airframe, which is an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance aircraft. And it does manned tactical ISR. So manned, clearly there's a crew. And tactical, we're basically interfacing with the, the warfighter immediately. We're overhead when they're in convoys. We were watching their back when they were uh, doing some kind of operation. And so I was uh, fortunate and had the opportunity to stand up this capability in Afghanistan and uh, supported the troops as best we could uh, from the sky, being their eyes and their ears. And it was extremely rewarding. Probably the most rewarding thing I've done in the Air Force is, is supporting the Afghanis and the NATO troops that were out there uh, during Operation Enduring Freedom. And uh, I got picked up from test pilot school basically uh, right after that assignment of flying MC-12s. And then, uh, you know, from there, I, I became a test pilot and tested F-15Cs and F-15Es, and that uh, drove me into the F-35s where I currently serve. Awesome. Now, tell me a little bit more about, you know, your current job. Uh, so, you know, what, what do you do? You have a really impressive title. You know, what does that job consist of and kind of what does your day-to-day -day job look like? Yeah, well, uh, I am the 461st Flight Test Squadron Commander and the F-35 Integrated Test Force at Edwards Director. My job is to ensure that this organization at Edwards is um, developing capability for the F-35 which includes flight testing capability for the F-35. And I, I manage a team of uh, anywhere between, it, it's fluctuated recently, but anywhere between 500 and 1,000 people. And the team is made up of contractors, uh, government civilians, military members. It's also joint service. So we have Navy and Marines supporting, and we have some foreign partners uh, supporting with some of their personnel. So day in, day out, it is managing this organization to execute flight tests for the F-35. We get that direction from the F-35 Joint Program Office. So I'm an arm uh, somewhat of the F-35. We call it the JPO, the Joint Program Office that's out in uh, Crystal City, Virginia. And so I, I basically am executing the priorities and the, the new software and the new systems that are coming down um, and ultimately uh, we deliver F-35 capabilities. So recently, the F-35 completed what they call the SDD, System Development and Demonstration Phase of the F-35 program, which was about a 15-year effort in the making, and, and we completed that January of this year, so January 2018. Uh, we finished our part of it, at least, at Edwards. And what we do here, in particular at Edwards, is we test the mission systems of the F-35, so all the F-35s. Uh, have systems in them that allow them to uh, effectively be used on the battlefield. And that could be a radar or data links or certain targeting pods. So that's the mission systems aspect. So what we test is the interface of all those systems with the pilot to make sure that you can prosecute the attack. And we do that for all F-35. So I have the distinct opportunity of flying the F-35A, F-35B, and F-35C uh, as one of a handful of people that get to fly all three because we need to make sure that those mission systems uh, are working for all three variants. We also do something called F-35A flight science testing. So just for the F-35A, 
we do flight sciences and flight sciences is the interaction of the airframe with the atmosphere. So can the air, aircraft fly uh, at, at the top speed? Can it, can it fly and pull nine Gs where it is supposed to? Can it load up certain weapons and pull the G forces that it needs to with those weapons? Uh, can it go out of control and then be recovered? Can the brakes work at, a, at the max speed that they're supposed to work at? And all those things are the, the interaction basically of the airframe with the atmosphere. And we do all that flight science testing for the A variant at Edwards Air Force Base. And I, I help direct uh, those efforts. On top of that, I'm an F-35 experimental test pilot that I alluded to earlier. Uh, and that's awesome. About once a week, I get to go fly a mission and make sure that the, the system is working the way that we need it to. And if it's not, then we give the engineers the right data so they can correct any deficiencies and uh, make sure that the warfighter is, uh, you know, flying um, a very capable airframe. Before these, you know, airplanes go into battle, uh, from my understanding, there's hundreds, if not thousands of different tests that your team runs on these planes. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we, we basically have to test every single aspect of the F-35 system in order to make sure that it works for that battlefield. So you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of different aspects that we're going to go after and collect data on and develop capability uh, for those battlefield capability, uh, for the battlefield mission sets. And for someone who's, you know, not familiar with F-35, you know, from obviously your standpoint, but maybe has seen it on TV or you know, on the internet. What's the difference between the A, B, and C variants? The F-35A is a conventional takeoff and landing aircraft. So you would imagine that as any typical aircraft landing at an airport. The F-35B is a short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft. So imagine uh, a, a Harrier aircraft that hovers to land and it can take off on very short fields because its nozzle can swing down and give it lift uh, to a certain degree that way. So that's the F-35B. The F-35C is the aircraft carrier uh, variant that is um, basically taking off and landing like a, a hornet would off an aircraft carrier. So it's getting catapulted off and then it's catching a cable, we call it a trap, and it's trapping on to the aircraft carrier. So those are the three variants. I've seen some videos online of the uh, F-35B, you know, taking off. It's, it's pretty incredible to watch it just hover like that. Yeah, the, the landing system of the F-35 is really something remarkable. Uh, both the B variant and the C variant have to, you know, land on aircraft carriers. And it is, um, it, it's a very well thought out design system that is not fully, but nearly autonomous, meaning the pilot uh, doesn't have to input too much. There's many safety, um, there's, there's many safety aspects of the, the technology. It, it's very intuitive to fly, it's, it's simple. Uh, it, it makes it very stable for the pilot to do these type of approaches, which can be extremely difficult and dangerous. You know, when you're dealing with pitching decks and, and thunderstorms uh, that could be, you know, uh, right over top of uh, the carriers. So they, they've done a really nice job with this aircraft and the simple flying aspect of it, taking off and landing. And the A variant's the same. I, I'm able to, to land this aircraft um, better than any aircraft that, and I've flown, as a test pilot, I've flown 30 plus aircraft, and this is by far the easiest landing aircraft I've ever flown. 
Thanks for listening to part one of the two-part podcast interview with Lieutenant Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton. Part two will be posted next Wednesday, and he has some more amazing stories to share. If you want to learn more about him, his LinkedIn profile is linked below. Thanks for listening, and see you next Wednesday.